On December 8, 1980, John Lennon and Yoko Ono left their apartment in the Dakota building on 72nd Street on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. As they were walking to the waiting limousine, a young man asked for an autograph. John was in a hurry that day, but took the time to stop and meet the young man and give his autograph before getting into the limo and proceeding to a recording studio. I have a picture of that that moment we're going to show here, the moment at which John Lennon stops to uh, give this uh, gentleman an autograph. Almost six hours later, as Lennon and Ono uh, returned home, the same young man was still there awaiting their return. This time, however, Mark David Chapman didn't ask for an autograph. He waited until Lennon had walked by, pulled out his 38 Special Revolver and fired five rounds, four of them hitting John Lennon in the back. As you know, Lennon was rushed to a local hospital but did not survive his injuries. When Chapman was arrested, he was holding in his hand the classic novel, The Catcher in the Rye. And when questioned by the police about the shooting, he claimed that, quote, the big part of me is Holden Caulfield, who is the main person in the book, and the small part of me must be the devil. As time would go on, some level of clarity would come to Chapman's motive in the shooting. He had become a a Beatles fan, but he was increasingly angry with Lennon's hypocrisy. In later interviews, he would discuss how Lennon would would talk and would sing and would advocate for this utopian state in which everyone is equal, and yet was living a lavish lifestyle in plush high-rises with limo drivers and yachts and everything else that marked the elite in America. Lennon had, after all, created a nice public image for himself. Remember the words to the song? Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. And yet, in reality, Lenin was known by those who worked with him as greedy. As being motivated solely by money and self-pleasure. Chapman also became angry over Lenin's belittling of belief in God. Remember Lenin's controversial statement that he was bigger than Jesus. So the question that was debated in the months that followed throughout Chapman's trial and appeals was whether he was insane or whether he was just evil. Whether he was mentally ill or whether he he was acting on what he perceived to be Righteous anger against a hypocritical superstar who said with his words that American capitalism was unfair and immoral, but in reality soaked up every benefit that it offered him. Was Chapman crazy or was he evil? I'm not a psychologist. I, I don't know that I can answer that question, but it does, it does sound an awful lot like a question that we see in the scriptures. One that comes up in our text today in the Gospel of Mark. With that uh, Beatles-themed introduction, would you stand as I read our scripture text for today? From Mark chapter 3, 
Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20, where we see an awfully similar question being asked about Jesus. This is God's word to us. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for your living and enduring word. May you open our eyes and soften our hearts to hear to receive from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you've recognized or, or paid much attention to the way in which Mark has structured the first half of his gospel account. But if you remember in part one of this series, I told you that Mark doesn't intend us to read his gospel account necessarily as a chronology or as a biography. Mark isn't at times, and I think we see this today, particularly interested in the precise order of events in which they take place. He groups together, and we saw this over the last several weeks, he groups together like accounts in order to lead the reader to know and understand a deeper theme. Mark connects together events in order to present to us an understanding, an idea. We saw that a couple weeks ago in the five encounters that Mark placed in sequence between Jesus and the Pharisees. Remember that crescendo of five encounters that build. We see the same thing in the text today. We don't know specifically the timing of the events that I just read for you, but we can assume for a number of reasons that there is a fair amount of time that actually passes between verse 20 And the end of our reading in verse 35. It's not all happening in one moment like it may appear on first glance. Uh, Nonetheless, Mark pairs together two seemingly unrelated circumstances to teach us about the reality and the danger of unbelief. And then he turns it around and reveals 
the tremendous gift that is given to all who believe. So as we reflect on this text, uh, we see three realities regarding belief and unbelief. First, we see the prevalence of unbelief. This is going to show up in two ways in Mark's account in these verses. First in verse 21 and then in verse 22. Verse 21, notice the unbelief of Jesus' family. When his family heard of this, they went out to seize him or take charge of him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now the way that Mark worded verse 21, it makes it challenging for translators. The King James, maybe you grew up reading this from the King James, the King James translates it as when his friends heard of it rather than family. We know from the text it's not his disciples because they are there with him. The word usually means those closest to him, or sometimes this word is translated kinfolk, the closest family to him. And and we see at the end of our text today, that this is where context is important, that his family has come. And so I think it's a fairly safe assumption that in verse 21, we can read that as Jesus' family, that his family was concerned that he was out of his mind. This is reinforced by John in chapter 7 of his gospel, when he tells us that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. We know from later in the gospels as well, also from, the, from church history in general, that many of his relatives at one point did come to believe in him later in life. Uh, for example, his brother Judas would write one of the epistles in the New Testament that we know as Jude. But at this time in Jesus' ministry, Mark tells us, they weren't believing. In fact, they were questioning his sanity. I think we can look at Jesus' actions and and decisions and see how they arrived at that assumption. He was, just one example, he was the firstborn. You may know, if you know any biblical history, you may know the, the importance of the firstborn in that culture. According to Jewish culture and tradition, he would have had a very clear and, and defined role as the firstborn with clear responsibilities and clear benefits that were his because of his birth order. It may have been common for a younger sibling to leave home, to pack up, to take off, uh, to walk away from responsibility, but it was embarrassing for the family if the firstborn did that. But not only that, they're likely starting to hear rumors. They were starting to hear about the controversy, about some of the things that Jesus was saying, and they were trying to piece these things together in their minds, and so they feel the need to protect him. They know that some of the things that he has been saying and doing could get him killed. And so they set out to seize him, to take him home for his own protection. And so if they, if they don't yet believe that he is the Son of God, then there, there are only so many options when it comes to how we think about Jesus. If we deny that he's the Son of God. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis that will be up on the screen here. Uh, C.S. Lewis so helpfully explained this for us in Mere Christianity. Speaking of people who, who deny the, the deity or the divinity of Jesus, but, but still want to reference him as a good and helpful teacher, Lewis writes these words. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim 
to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus' family didn't know what to make of Jesus. Those closest to him weren't sure what to think. And for them, it seemed like the, like the insanity defense maybe was the easiest way to deal with it. He must be out of his mind. And so they arrive and they try to seize him and take him home for his own good, for his own protection. But it wasn't just Jesus' family who didn't believe. Notice the unbelief of the religious leaders as well. We've talked about this at great length in the last number of weeks. Verse 22 And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now it's likely that these scribes that Mark mentions were sent from Jerusalem specifically for the purpose of spying on Jesus and reporting back to the high priests. And so Mark inserts this account right here where the scribes accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul. A bit of a side note here, Mark uses the word down from Jerusalem, which if you know uh, the geography of the area might be interesting to you. Uh, you know that where, they, where this is taking place is north of Jerusalem, so we would typically say they went up to Jerusalem, or they went up to uh, whatever community they're in at this time. But uh, if you know Jewish history, you know that you always go up to Jerusalem, exalting the role, the, the place of the holy city. And so Mark, in keeping with that, says that they went up, or sorry, they went down from Jerusalem to this village. Just an interesting uh, tidbit there. So what do these scribes accuse Jesus of? They accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul was known as the prince of demons, the ruler of demons. This name likely has its origins in the worship of Baal. It was believed that Baal's wicked prophets received their powers from the demons. So Jesus' family make the assumption that he's crazy... But the religious leaders, the scribes, go with C.S. Lewis's other option, that he was, in fact, possessed by a demon. And again, their reasoning has some merit to it. They assumed that he couldn't be the Messiah. He didn't fit the mold that they had in their minds. He didn't check the boxes. He didn't follow the rules. And so in their minds, he couldn't be the Messiah. So who was he? What do we make of him? What are the alternatives? And, and demon possession seemed like a good assumption for them. Two sides. We see here two sides. Insanity, demon possession, two sides of the same coin of unbelief. But Jesus is, is quick to refute the scribe's argument. And his response is pretty logical. 
Verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? It doesn't make sense. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And, and then Jesus actually gives them an alternative uh, way to view what he is doing. He says he's not possessed by Beelzebul. He has instead invaded the house of a strong man and tied him up so that he might plunder his possessions. Think about the, the beauty of that picture. He's obviously referring to Satan, the prince of this world, the one who deceived humanity and took them for his own possession. And Jesus says that he came into the world to tie up the strong man and to plunder his house. And that's exactly what Jesus would do. He came not doing the works of evil, but in order to defeat evil, to conquer Satan. Unbelief was prevalent and is prevalent today. And it showed itself, and it still does today, in all sorts of ways. Next, I want you to see the danger of unbelief that Mark tells us about. Jesus goes on in verses 28 through 30 to confront unbelief head on. And he issues an important warning. Verse 28, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Few passages in Scripture have caused more confusion and more wrestling than Jesus' words in these couple of verses. And that's where context is so critical. These words are difficult to process if we rip them out of their context in the Gospels. Mark clearly intends these verses to be read, to be understood, to be interpreted in the middle of this discussion over unbelief. Jesus talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit as an unforgivable sin. So what does that mean? Jesus is confronting the unbelief of the scribes. They are calling, think about this, they are calling the Holy Spirit's work evil. They are calling light darkness. They're watching the very working of God in front of their eyes and labeling it as the work of demons. They're, they're conspiring to kill Jesus because he has the audacity to heal a man's withered hand. They're angered over the fact that he healed a leper and restored his life. So, so what is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It's a conscious and deliberate rejection and denial of God's saving work and purpose. Let me say that again. It's a conscious and deliberate rejection and denial of God's saving work and purpose. It's not just spiritual blindness. It's not just us speaking in our ignorance. Remember Jesus' words at the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. This isn't just the blindness that those Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus had. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's a conscious, deliberate, intentional denial, rejection of God's work and purpose. This is not a sin that one stumbles into. This is a defiant resistance to the Holy Spirit 
going so far as to label the work that God is doing as evil. Notice Jesus' emphasis on the the abundant forgiveness of God. We have to understand these verses about blaspheming the Holy Spirit in the context of what Jesus is saying about forgiveness. That forgiveness is abundant. It is ample. That all their sins, Jesus said, every slander can be forgiven. It's an important emphasis when we think about these words. We have to be careful that we don't apply Jesus' words here about blaspheming the Holy Spirit outside of the context in which Jesus said them. Jesus is calling out the hard hearts of the scribes who see the very hand of God among them, who in fact see the very Son of God among them and call him evil. They label it the work of Beelzebul. Don't confuse this with doubt. It's an important point. Don't confuse what Jesus is saying with the simple doubt that all of us feel. Don't confuse what Jesus is saying with our struggle with sin. This is the clear and intentional mislabeling of the good work of God as something evil. This is the danger of unbelief. That today we just doubt God's goodness. Today we just doubt that God will provide. Today we We doubt that God has our best in mind, that God loves us more than we love ourselves. Whatever it might be, we're just enjoying that one particular sin too much to to give it up. The the danger is not that our sin today won't be forgiven. The, The danger is that eventually we find our hearts so hardened, so calloused by our sin that we become like the scribes full of knowledge about God, but blaspheming the very Spirit of God with our lips, calling his work evil. Jesus' words are not intended to to cause you to live in fear that you've unknowingly committed this sin that will damn you to hell. This is a call to repentance. A A call to heed the warning about unbelief and to turn to the cross, to turn to Christ, a call to repent and believe the good news, not to live in fear. We see the prevalence of unbelief, the danger of unbelief, and third, I want you to see the relational result of faith in Christ. We see in verses 31 and following that Jesus' family are back on the scene. His mother and his brothers came and called for him, worried that he was going to get himself killed, worried that he was crazy, that they're wanting to take him back to Nazareth with them. But notice Jesus' reaction. He asks a rhetorical question. Verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, in many ways, this is a a shocking turn of events. Jesus' Jesus' words could be read in a disrespectful tone. Think about how you would hear these words if you were Jesus' family, listening in. And yet, we can't miss what Jesus is doing here. He's not downplaying or despising family connections and relationship. That's not what he's doing. He is elevating the reality 
of our adoption into the family of God. He is lifting up the reality that by faith we are part of God's family and that those ties bind tightly. We, we don't feel the full weight of this as American Christians because we've, we've never really experienced persecution. We, we've never been, by and large, tremendously alienated because of our faith. But those who followed Jesus, we know the outcome of most of Jesus' disciples. They ended up being martyred because of their faith. Those who weren't martyred were alienated. Many were kicked out of their families. They were disowned. They were marginalized. They had to walk away from everything that they had ever known. The cost of following Jesus was high. And so think about these words of Jesus. Jesus gives a gift to all Christians here. The promise that, that by faith we have a family. By faith in Jesus Christ we belong. We have a family that cares for its own or that is supposed to care for its own. A family that loves and welcomes. Jesus essentially says that God desires that the relational ties of your family of faith be every bit as tight, if not tighter, than ties to your biological family. Jesus isn't downplaying the biological family. He's lifting up, he's exalting the role of Christ's church, of the family of faith. Now, I want to throw a word of caution in here because these are words that have been abused. These are words that have been twisted and used by a number of cult leaders in our history to alienate would-be followers, to turn people against their families in order to demand unquestioned devotion to the leader. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's simply making it clear that by faith in him, we are brought into a new kingdom. We are given a new family, and that, that's a beautiful gift. It's a gift that should cause all of us to, to consider how we view our family of faith. How we view one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do I, do I view the church as a service provider? Think about that. Do I view the church as a social club? Or do I view these people sitting around us today as my family? Think about that difference. If, the, if these people around you as Jesus says, really are your mothers and brothers and sisters. That changes our commitment to one another. And it also changes the way that we show grace and love to each other. It changes everything. Far too often, uh, we view the church as an organization and not as a family. A family says, I know your deepest failings. And I love you anyway. Family says, I know your scars, I know your mistakes, I know your personality flaws, I know what you look like without makeup on, I know what your feet smell like after a long day, I love you, I'm not going anywhere. Mark packs these stories together for a very important purpose. He wants us to believe, and so I ask you today, believe not just do you intellectually affirm that this is historical truth but do you believe the words of Jesus who who do you believe that Jesus is is he crazy is he evil 
Is he a good moral teacher? Or is he the high king of heaven who died for you and died for me? And once we've settled that question, what, what Mark and Jesus make clear for us in our text today is we are given this incredible reminder that we are not on our own. That we have a family, that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are part of his mission together to our world. By God's grace, may Living Word Fellowship be a place where, where people can wrestle with this question of who Jesus is. And may all who enter these doors find for themselves the open arms of a loving family of faith. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you didn't leave us in our sin. That you didn't abandon us in our unbelief. But that you sent your son to die in our place to bear our sin upon the cross, that you in turn offer us his righteousness and that, that by faith we belong. Lord, help us believe. Give us faith. Give us stronger faith. Give us deeper faith. And the Lord, Lord make us into the, to the kind of, of loving faith community that you desire us to be. That all who walk through these doors would know the embrace of the Savior through his body. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.